Namaste and welcome. This is Jainil Dalal and you are listening to the Design MBA. This podcast is a real-life MBA program for designers where we interview design hustlers and learn the skills, mindset necessary for a designer to launch a business venture. You can learn more, find past episodes and stay updated at designmba.show. Why are you listening to this podcast? Think about it. Deep down, you want to grow in your design career. And I've been in your shoes. I've pushed pixels for years without really knowing how the hell do I grow in my design career. So I've created a free email course for you to help you level up your design career. The strategies I share in this 7-day email course are actionable and used by over 700 plus designers with success. So head over to levelup.designmba.show or you can find the link to this email course in the show notes. Level up your design career today. Today's awesome guest is Scott Talinsky, who is the creator of Level Up Tutorials, where he has created thousands of free and premium web development tutorials. Scott also is the co-host of the popular web development podcast, Syntax. In his free time, Scott is a dedicated breakdancer, cool and enjoys pushing himself athletically through dance, working out, and snowboarding. He also enjoys green tea and Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies. Go to YouTube and just type in Level Up Tuts. Level Up Tuts has 326,000 plus subscribers, which is insane. And if you want to become a better web developer and you want to find out cutting edge, focused, and high quality video tutorials for web developers and designers, Head on over to leveluptutorials.com. That's once again, leveluptutorials.com altogether. And yeah, consider going pro and supporting Scott's awesome work. Scott, oh my God, I am a huge fan since you first released those sketch tutorials. And I cannot believe all these years later that you're on the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Hey, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I got to say, man, this moment, like for me, from my perspective, it's you got like 45,000 followers on Twitter and maybe more. I'm probably getting it wrong. You've got like 300,000 plus subscribers on YouTube. So I could not believe that a guy like you just agreed to come on my show. So, I mean, I'm just so excited, man. I'm always happy to do this stuff because the people who lifted me up early on gave me a chance by, you know, my tutorials on or, or tweeting out or sharing my stuff. So any chance I can do to do anything, help out anybody, I'm, I'm always on board. So thank you for inviting me on in the first place. So I'm happy to be here. Do you remember any stories like when you're just starting out before you became famous, like people helping you out? Do you remember the specific moments <laughs> like this specific person helped me out and XYZ? So one big one is uh, Chris Epstein of, uh, he worked on uh, some, I think it was Compass was his baby. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent positive that that was like his exclusive ever, but he did a lot of stuff in the SaaS community, specifically Compass. And I had like one of the first set of, well, probably the first set of Compass and SaaS tutorials up on YouTube. And he shared them like right away. And that's back when I had like, you know, 20 subscribers on the site. And, you know, being the person who created the library or worked on the library. So, you know, he had so much, you know, social push for having created it. It was like the person who created my thing, sharing my thing that I, you know, I created. And that really helped me out a lot. In fact, if you go back and look at like, the subscribers, you can see it's like little bump from when he tweeted it out. So that was always pretty sick. And um, I think that was like the very first one that I, I got like a nice little bump from and a nice little like, oh, okay. So people will take notice if I do things on content that there isn't out there a whole lot of, you know? Yeah. And you're a break dancer. So <laughs> how did that happen? Like you're a break dancer, you're doing programming or was it like something you were always doing on the side? How did that, how did you transition from break dancing into like, I'm going to make a career in programming? Yeah, I think I danced first. It was probably around the same time. Although I did, when I was a, in high school, I did a lot of like the MySpace hacking stuff and I was into flash development, at least to do like, I was in a band. So we were, you know, making our bands page in flash and I got into Angel Fire and CSS and HTML that way, just dropping in some like really one-liner JavaScript snippets. I didn't know what I was doing. And then so I started breaking in like 2004. And that was like, it was just like a hobby. I'd come from like sort of an extreme sports world before that. So I had been doing rollerblading and skateboarding. I was like sponsored by Vans and stuff. So I had like- No way. Been, yeah. yeah professionally. I got, 
No, not a professional. No, no, no. Just simply sponsored. Like I got to wow. open open up skate parks. Like there was the Van Skate Park in Novi, Michigan, that I got to be the like the very first skater on it. Not skateboarder, rollerblader. Damn. I was the first rollerblader on it. It was like me and two other skateboarders for the press release. I got like backstage passes to the Warp Tour for several years. Oh so God. I was like in that sort of extreme sports world. Not that breaking is really it's breaking is way more of a creative endeavor. I mean. I think at a high level, anything is like very creative. But with breaking, you have so much more to think about in terms of like musicality. It's funny because I've had two concussions in my life and both sort of had big changes in my sort of daily life. My first concussion was on a, a large handrail. I slipped off. I fell off. It even broke my helmet. My helmet I saw shut the video, off. yeah. And so that one was really rough. And uh, that's what led me to start breakdancing because or breaking or b-boying because it's like you stay close to the floor, right? You don't have to be in the air. So I started breaking and uh, I started, I picked it up and I was, uh, you know, part of the group at the University of Michigan. I was eventually like the president of the group at the University of Michigan. And I just practiced a whole lot. I practiced maybe like five, six times a, a week. It was like, that was my social group was the the B-boys. So we would just hang out and we would do shows out at campus. And next thing I know, I'm driving around the US and entering competitions in some really terrible music videos and that that sort of thing. And I'd been programming this whole time, but it was just sort of like a hobby. At some point, my wife, I wanted to be a motion graphics artist. I was doing a lot of yeah. video editing. So video was always my thing, right? It was like video, video, video. I went to school for music and I was doing too many things, design, video, art, whatever. And my wife was like, pick something. Like, just pick <laughs> one thing. Like you're doing too much stuff. So I picked programming and specifically web development. And she was really, really good about doing this kind of stuff. So she just started finding jobs for me, left and right. Here's a job, here's a job, here's a job. No way. I was working randomly as an accountant for a record label, uh, just as like a sort of a, like a gig that I got through a friend. I don't know anything about accounting. It's mostly crazy. just <laughs> entering data all day. So <laughs> the record labels, Ghostly International, they're a fantastic label. It's still one of my favorite labels. And so that was like always really cool for me. But yeah, uh, she found the job that would eventually become my first web development job. And that was in 2011. I got my first gig and just, you know, was totally hooked. That is insane. I mean, I've seen you do the windmills <laughs> and just crazy feats with breakdancing. And I don't think I'm that <laughs> flexible per se. I mean, I do yoga, but I don't think I'm that level yet. What's crazy about breaking is that if you tell a lot of people that like, you need this skill, X, Y, and Z skill, but it's going to take you like two and a half years before you can learn it. Most people would be like, all right, I'm out. And so yeah. like, that's the hard part is that when we would teach people and people would see us on campus and whatever, they'd want to do what we're doing. They would see us and be like, wow, how can I learn that? And you'd see them one week for practice. You teach them the next week, you teach them the next week. And then they just stop showing up because they realize how hard it, it all is. It took me like the windmill I practiced it nearly daily for eight months. Like at the wow. end of those eight months, yeah, I got it. But it, it didn't look good then. And then only even like, when I watch my windmills, I'm still like nitpicking like all of the things wrong with them because there's just such a higher level that could be like attained in all of this stuff. So I never quite got to the the levels where I would have wanted to get in breaking. But, you know, my crew and my group, we won, you know, 20 plus competitions and it was a lot of fun. And I still break for fun, but, uh, you know, I'm out of the competitive scene. That's for sure. <laughs> That's dope, man. I think I somehow feel like breakdancing or breaking taught you the art of playing the long game. Oh, yeah. And I'm trying to think about that terrible injury you had. And I watched this video where you kind of like fell down and you kind of like fell on your head oh, and yeah. you thought it was okay. So kind of walk me through that, you know, like just getting that injury and then getting this idea that, okay, I'm going to now start YouTube tutorial videos. <laughs> yeah. That was actually the same spot that I practiced in. You, if you watch the video, it's on Honeypot's YouTube channel. That's the same spot we practiced in for like my entire college breaking life. So that was in mm -hmm. like a campus building. It's on tile floor, tile on top of concrete. It's like the worst. It's uneven, like jagged tile. It's like the worst possible environment to be dancing in. But like, or especially breaking where your head's always on the floor. But like, that's just what, what we did because we had no other spot. And because uh, the club was poor, we couldn't afford practice space or anything like that. So, we, you know, we just hung out in the campus building. And if security told us to leave, we'd leave. But it was like our general spot for many years. And so that floor sucked. It was just hard floor. You smack something in there, you're going to feel it. And so this is a move yeah. I'd been practicing for like several years. It's still a move that I practice. And I'm only now like really 
I'm not even getting it now, but it's, it's just a hard move. It's called an elbow air flare. You're on one elbow, you toss over, you land on the other one. And I had like been getting them kind of solid where I could hit it and then at least throw it into another move, like a windmill. And uh, I went to throw it into a windmill, but my angle was off. So when I went to like throw it down, I basically just smacked the side of my head into the ground. And I kept practicing for like the rest of the week. I even, the next day was Valentine's Day. My wife and I had like a Valentine's meal. We had lots of wine and that sort of thing. I just didn't even think something was wrong. Like I just felt really bad for the next few days. And I had a huge bruise on the side of my head. We had to cancel our wedding photos because I had a huge bruise on the side of my head. It was just, it was like, it was like just very like apparent that something had gone wrong. So once I found out that it was a, a concussion and a pretty bad one, I was just having crazy amount of symptoms. And so that happened, I can tell you, it happened the day before Valentine's Day in 2012. And that's when I hit, mm-hmm. hit my head. I can tell, I just remember it so clearly. And then so before this, there was like a period of time where my boss and I, his name is Ben Schaff. He's a really, really talented developer. He and I had been watching a bunch of YouTube channels and sort of like at the time there was maybe like one or two doing web development. I mean, it was like really not a whole lot of people doing web development on yeah. YouTube. It was good video tutorial content, but it wasn't on YouTube. Like uh, Team Treehouse at the time was still Think Vitamin. So Think Vitamin was doing uh, yes. good videos. Yeah. Remember that? And there was like Drupalize Me, I think. There were some Drupal specific ones that were doing it. And we were consuming a lot of those tutorials. We were buying them. We were watching them on YouTube. And like, I just remember being so annoyed with some of these presenters, you know, whether or not they would have the bad audio or the mouth noises or weird little just quirks or something in their programming. I just felt like we could do it better. I had no background in it. I didn't really speak into a mic very often. I had no, no really understanding that I could do it other than like, Hey, I know what these people are doing bad and I can at least do the production side of things. You know, I went to school for music technology. I worked yes. as a video editor. Like it's like, I have all the background things. And the only thing I didn't have was necessarily the skills for web development. So That was only a year into my, I got the job in March 2011, and I started my YouTube channel in March 2012. So I'd only been a professional dev for one year when I started the channel. And what I'd realized very quickly was that, like, there's nobody doing this basic stuff really well. Like, I don't need to do the hard stuff. I should do the stuff that's at my level. So I started just recording video tutorials of stuff that I knew. And believe it or not, the first like six video tutorials I recorded were of Adobe Premiere and Adobe After Effects. And I just never, I think I released them eventually, but they were really bad. So I didn't even do programming tutorials because I like wasn't confident in my ability to do that well. But it was at some point when I I just started picking up, I started doing Drupal tutorials, Magento tutorials, and SAS tutorials. Those ended up really carrying me through. I think I did like almost like a hundred Drupal tutorials and apply oh about God. that many Magento ones. Yeah. So I just picked up from there, but, but either way we had been talking about doing this YouTube channel for several months just because we were like, Oh, we could do it. We could do it. And then when the concussion happened, I had so much free time. I used to break like three nights a week. So it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday was my dance time. My wife was getting her PhD. So it's not like she needed my wow. attention. She had enough to do. Was uh, it so- psychologically <laughs> devastating? Like what a psychologically devastating face injury. I felt very like I needed to go move. I mean, I, like I said, I'd been skating before then and there was like not a whole lot of downtime. That first concussion wasn't so bad. The second one, I mean, I couldn't do anything for eight months. I couldn't even do yoga. I mean, it was just like if I, I started taking yoga and my symptoms came back and that was like sort of my marker. I was seeing a neurologist at the university of Michigan and she was basically like, the moment you feel those symptoms, that's like a cue to back off. But you can do everything up until when you feel those symptoms, but it would be like nothing. Like I'd be doing hardly anything and the symptoms would come back. So it was just really frustrating for me because I especially wanted to get out back out of dancing. That was like a point in time in our breaking that we had started winning everything. It was like if we were going to yeah. enter something, we were going to win it. So it was like, okay, well, now I, I hear now my crewmates are winning stuff without me. I'm like, I got to get back out there. Yeah. You know, I was able to come back the first time I did any dancing after my concussion was on my wedding night. Oh my, my, God. my whole crew was there and we did a performance and I hadn't been breaking at all. I was completely untrained and I was fine. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. I threw, threw all my stuff and whatever. One of the guys in my crew was like hammered and he threw a backflip and we were like, how did you do that, man? Like he, he could hardly stand up straight and he did a backflip somehow. So it was a lot of fun. People loved it. So yeah. Were it, you not it was afraid? Just, 
like you know you haven't practicing for so long and what if like you know that fear that comes in like you need to get injured once like what if i get injured again and that kind of prohibits sometimes humans and a lot of people from going against so we're not afraid of that i think i was just so antsy to get back into it at that point that i was just like i was gung-ho and it's my wedding night man i had a lot of adrenaline pumped up so it was just like <laughs> let's do it i got a you know a room full of 600 people whatever watching you perform essentially and i'm used to performing but like dang like it was you want to do a good job on your wedding night for everybody who's there and whatever. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. I don't know what, I had so much energy running through my veins that like, yeah, I was pretty sore for the next couple of weeks. But other than that, it was, it was fine. (laughs) Wow. And then going back to you starting the the YouTube channel doing your injury. I think like, this is like you mentioned to me, 2012, that sweet spot right there. Cause I remember in 2011, I was like messing around with Linux and Ubuntu and stuff. And I think I made some videos on there, but I never followed through like you. And I remember because they also have me and my Indian accent, the original accent. So it sounded mm-hmm. like today we are going to talk about Ubuntu, mm-hmm. how to install mm-hmm. Ubuntu there. I had to work a little bit on this accent, but what was your gear like? Did you like deck out completely when you were first starting out or first few videos? Yeah, so not necessarily, but like I had been in this performing arts technology program in college. And so because of that, I had literally these headphones that I'm wearing right now because to go to that program, it's basically all audio engineering stuff. So to be in that program, you sort of needed your own, at least small rig. So Mm -hmm. I had a nice microphone, which was a blue snowball. It's not like the USB mics they have today, but it was like a $600 blue mic. I still have it. It's Mm -hmm. great. And I got it mostly for singing, but it, it was fine for my voice. And then I, I had a, it was called an M box. It was made by DigiDesign, so I could use Pro Tools. And then I had, so I had the microphone, the M box, and these headphones, and then a laptop, and that was it. That was all I needed. I had good gear, and I, I think I understood the importance of having good audio and good video quality from the beginning. There was a lot of lessons I had to learn in terms of like how to produce and how to have the content yeah. appear the way I wanted it to appear. But yeah. I think from the very beginning, I knew that I could produce at least better audio than 90% of the tutorials that I heard where somebody was using like the pencil mic that comes, or they're even worse, their like laptop onboard mic or something where you oh just hear fans running. I mean, there's just so <laughs> at the time, there was like only one person doing tutorials with even decent audio and his audio wasn't as good as mine. So it was like time to just uh, like show up and at least have better production. And what's funny is that I learned very quickly that if you watch a video tutorial and in the first like... 30 seconds of it, you think the audio is bad, you just leave. You just say, if the audio is bad, then why, you know, I can't sit through, you know, 10 minutes of this or whatever, unless it's the only video on the topic. But if you're left between two topics or two videos and somebody's got good audio and good presentation, you're going to pick that one every time. Of course. And you're making these videos. Did you think about that, hey, I'm going to start a YouTube channel for monetization? Because I mean, 2012, I mean, YouTube had monetization, I'm assuming, but it was not mm-hmm. as big as it's now. So was that an active thought or was it still like a side project you were just pursuing? There was like a calculator at some point. I'm not sure if this still exists. I don't even remember the name of it. But there was like this website that would calculate generally how much people were making off of YouTube yes. at the time. We typed in the new Boston. I don't know if you remember the new Boston, the YouTube channel. It's got like a million subscribers now, but at the time he didn't. Mm-hmm. He only had like 200,000. And uh, we typed in the new Boston and we thought we were doing... a better job than he was or could do a better job than he was and uh he said that he was like making like a hundred thousand dollars a year of ads and we're like oh <laughs> like that could pay our, our rent both of if we split that 50 50 between my boss and i that could that could pay our rent that could you know whatever that's like that's great money if we can get it sure enough i mean it was a long time before it got monetization and obviously i don't know how much you know about how the monetization has changed over time but like yeah. once we hit like a thousand dollars a month, it, that was like the high point. It's only gone down from there. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So to this point where you have like 300,000 plus subscribers, there's a YouTube monetization <laughs> that comes in from the ads, right? So how much is that? Like roughly ballpark or something like that compared to what it was before? So at one point, I think that maybe the highest we were making it was maybe like two grand a month. And then... Uh, wow. then they like cut it in half and then they cut it in half again and then they cut it in half again. So what we saw is that earlier on when we had less subscribers, like under a hundred thousand and we were getting probably about the same amount of views we're getting today, we were making way more money. And what was really apparent to me very quickly was just that big daddy YouTube could just 
flip the switch at any point and cut your revenue in half. You know, it was still like extra money. I have always had a job as a developer up until, you know, like 2016 when I turned level up tutorials into a business. It was always just extra money. So, you know, you could only complain so much, but it always just felt like at any given point, they could pull the rug out from under you. One of the big changes that they made was about the length of videos. And this hurt a lot of animators, people who were doing like two to three minute long animation shorts, which actually take a ton of time to produce, right? Yes. Those people were getting hammered because their videos weren't long enough for monetization. You're also seeing like YouTubers pad the length of their videos with bumpers and extra stuff or whatever, just to get to that like 12 minute mark. And our video content was mostly between the six and 10 minutes. So when they made that change about like the duration being a big factor, not like percentage of watch time or something, we got hit hard because most of our videos were under that limit. So like I said, it was like one morning you woke up and your, your earnings were like cut in half, basically. So yeah. that really opened my eyes to like, who owns the platform, right? <laughs> right? Yes. You can only complain so much about it. You are, you are behest to their, their control, so... But in 2016, you decided to just, you know, quit your full-time dev job and focus on develop touch. So you were quite aware that Big Daddy YouTube at some point could, again, slash your revenue in half, but you still took totally. the risk. I took the risk, but it was a different, it was a, um, it was not a jump into doing YouTube full-time because what I had realized by then mm-hmm. at that point was that if I was going to make a, a living off of doing this stuff, I needed to move my platform off of YouTube. Ah. YouTube is still a fantastic means of, you know, sharing content and uploading the content, producing the content, all those wonderful things uh, that it lets people discover your content. But like for me, that was like, um, it was a big wake up call that like, if I wanted to make enough money to support my family doing what I'm doing, that I needed to move off of YouTube or at least I needed to find a way to make money doing what I'm doing with the tutorials outside of YouTube. So uh, that was really where we went as we started offering leveluptutorials.com subscriptions. The, The website had always existed. It had always been like sort of a, a thing, but it was really just a place for SEO to help grow the subscriber rate. And at some point we started offering a subscription and it was like $8 a month and it got you just about nothing. It got you like an ad free, the ad freeze. That's it. You just didn't get any ads. And we maybe got like, I don't know, over the course of a year or maybe like a hundred subscribers, like nothing. And it was like definitely not enough to support the business or to support, sustain myself. So I took a job at a uh, startup. So I I basically had to like, admit defeat. So I took a job at a startup, which eventually was ultimately the wrong decision because I could have like really invested the time into learning like how to offer the right amount of value and how to actually like create something people will pay for rather than giving like little value and expecting and what year to pay was you this? a little bit of money. 2016, 2017 okay. going in and then there. The very edge of that happened when I quit the startup because they were horribly managed. Oh there gosh. was just like a lot of unfulfilled promises and it was you know, they were cutting pay and all those sorts of stuff. And I was the uh, CTO and I was just like, listen, oh. well, I was never given the support I was given. Everybody else was not doing their part and I was putting in way over time and I wasn't getting paid for it. So I was like working my ass off essentially for, you know, nothing because I, I believed in the company. But at some point I was like, listen, this company is never going to happen with these people in charge, even if, yeah. you know, I owned a huge chunk of the company and it was like a good idea. Yeah. They just given it to me. And I was just like, okay, like I believe I can execute on this, but nobody else was doing their part. And I uh, basically, I quit. One of the managers who, one of the owners who was like, at least a little bit clued in was like, I get it. I understand. You know, you're clearly the only one here who's like really putting in the time. So that was May of 2017, April of 2017. Okay. I quit. And the same week I quit, it might've been literally the same day I quit. Cause I, I was feeling really juiced up about quitting. I was feeling really pumped about quitting. So you're saying that you quit finally the startup and your buddy quit at the same time was working with you. No, no, I just quit. I just quit. There was two owners of the company. Two of them both had owned like larger bits and I had owned a smaller bit. And uh, one of which who was like, she had her own job. Like she had another job. So she was just like not into it. And the other person she was not good at her role doing what she was doing in the startup. And because of that, like it was just, just floundering, even though like my work was excellent. So I quit. I felt really great about quitting. And it was literally maybe a couple hours after quitting, I went on to Slack because Wes and I had already been acquainted for like over a year at that point. I just messaged him and was like, hey, you know that podcast idea we're kicking around? Let's go for it oh. right now. And that's when we started Syntax. 
And we had, I mean, we probably started it like the week after that because we had the year before talked about doing it and we had maybe like 20 episode ideas already lined up. Yeah. But I was so busy with my work and he was busy with his work. Neither of us made it a priority. And then like at that point when I didn't have a job, I was like, okay, we got to do something here. Let's start this podcast. I'm going to try to do level up tutorials full time. And then it was uh, the right time to do everything. And, uh, you know, everything worked out. Did you the way save did, up? So. so like before, I mean, you quit the startups. So I'm assuming by that point, so like two questions come to mind. First yeah. is <laughs> when you're a CTO and you're busy, the startup, you're still producing the videos for level up tuts, right? You're still doing that on yes. the side. But the effort that I was putting into was kind of dwindling. Cause like I said, I was working so overtime with this code base that it was just like yeah. very frustrating. But that was at a time when I was doing a lot of those like meteor tutorials that have definitely like, they were like the meteor tutorials on the web. And mm -hmm. like, there was a lot of cool stuff that I was doing at that same time. But like my output really plummeted, especially on YouTube. How are you managing your time? Because you're still a CTO and most people when they come home from work, they're exhausted, they're tired. So were you like doing it in the morning, in the night? And you also like editing the whole thing before uploading yeah. it. So yeah, how are you managing all that, man? Well, I got at some point when you're recording like a few thousand tutorials, you get like very efficient at it. So like I didn't have any preparation time because the stuff I'm teaching is stuff that I'm working on all day. And I've always done that the whole time that I've done level up tutorials. And even now, the stuff that I'm teaching is, is the same exact stuff that yeah. I'm actually coding all day. So I don't have to take any time to study a subject or something. And two, I got really good at video editing, like especially with my tutorials. If I make a mistake, I stop, I take a breath and then I take the take again. And then that way I could visually edit. If I see any gaps in the audio, I know that's where I messed up. I don't work off a script because I'm not a good reader. So I just sort of make it up as I go. And I've just been doing it for so long that it just feels like second nature. So I honestly don't know. I just got good enough at it where like editing wouldn't take me that long. If it was a 15 minute long video, I edit at 2x speed. Like I listen to it twice as fast. I cut out the gaps. And I could probably edit a 15 minute long video if there's not a ton of mess ups in 10 minutes or something. So I just got good at that aspect of it, which still even now is a huge help. I can edit my entire 25 video series in two days. That's like Sweet. six hour days, not even like eight hour days or something. So I just got efficient at it and I would do a couple here, a couple there, whatever, nights and weekends, whenever I, I could. But I mean, once May hit, my son was born in May of 2017. Once he was born, it was like, Rest. All that time went away, right? Like just completely disappeared. Uh, another thing is like when I quit, we had a child and then all of a sudden it's like, oh shoot, I, uh, I don't have any income. You know, <laughs> that, that seems like a terrible idea to not have any income. Luckily, my wife had a job, but you know, it was, her job was basically just covering rent. So it was like, well, we need to do something or else our bank account's just going to keep going down and down and down. So I just hustled and found a way to make level up tutorials, provide more value provide exclusive content, better production, better everything, and just win for it. And, you know, in a few months, luckily, Syntax became a, a hit just about instantly. It was like our, we had recorded three episodes and we were like going to okay. release all three at once. And we were like, well, maybe by the 20, 30th episode, we can get sponsors in here. We had a sponsors on episode number four and we haven't had an episode without a sponsor since. So it was like, wow. just How about really, I think Wes has a huge audience and I have a huge audience, both in different places. His audience is like Twitter and also his mailing list. And then my audience was like YouTube. And we did some sort of like audience analysis comparison. And it was like, you have 14% overlap. We we're like, what? That's it? So like we both had like a, an ability to reach a lot of people from the get go. And we released three episodes at once and just blessed our lists. And because those three episodes got a lot of downloads, it put us up in trending. And we've basically been in the technology trending ever since because we've always released on a schedule. We've never missed a Monday or a Wednesday now at this point. So wow. we've had a, you know, two episodes a week from whenever to whenever. And, you know, it, it just, I think the stuff that he and I had both been so equipped to produce something like that at this point, I think that the only thing that was going to stop it from being good was the actual content of the show itself. But luckily, we both teach by talking. So, you know, that was always the number one goal. He and I actually, before we recorded a single episode, we had a huge list of just stuff we hated about certain podcasts. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like this in this podcast because of these reasons. And here's <laughs> why we're not going to do that. Or here's why we're not going to do this commonly done thing because I don't like it because of this. So we had this like big list of ideas of like what makes a successful podcast and what doesn't. And we listed like the podcast we liked. And he and I just had such similar taste in that stuff from the beginning. It was almost like finishing each other's sentences in terms of like what we wanted out of it. 
So I think it was just a naturally good pairing. And I think we just, we maybe got a little bit lucky because he and I were, you know, we were acquaintances. We had been a part of this like mastermind group helping each other out with our product pages. And we've been talking a lot and doing meetings, but he and I had never created one piece of content together since before that first episode of Syntax. That was the very first thing we had ever done to create a piece of content together. And uh, I think there's chemistry from the start. I think it just worked out really well for some reason. And he and I both, like I said, we both teach in this medium for so long that I think that was like the number one focus was value, value, value. Like people don't care about, you know, what you had for breakfast today. You know, if you're going to talk about that stuff, like I listened to some web dev podcast. I don't remember what it is at this point. Back yeah. when, before we had done syntax and it was like 30 minutes of the 60 minute long episode was just like talking about, oh, what did you do? Whatever. And like we yeah. do some of that stuff, but it's like we keep it to under a couple minutes and then then move into the actual, all right, here's the meat. What are we talking about in this episode? This is what we're talking about. Let's go back and forth, whatever. Yeah, I'd love to hear your pet peeves after we are done the interview. You're like, hey. <laughs> I know. Yeah, like what is your release schedule? Like, do you still do like the twice a week? So it's like then eight episodes a month. Wow. And right now we recorded all of our episodes until the end of this month. So we've been taking two months off for the first time ever, but the episodes are still coming out because we were just, we were recording like six episodes a week for a little bit just to get ahead of it. And um, he and I both have a lot of subjects that we're interested in. Like occasionally be like, all right, who's running this show? All right, Scott's running this show because he's done all the research or Wes is running this show and the other one just like plays a support role of asking questions or takes the role of the audience and like kind of leads the episodes. We will work off of an outline and for some reason we can both read each other's brains enough just to know where things are going to go or it all, all just sort of works out. I don't, I don't know if it's just because we've produced so much content this way that we just have it, you know, but at this point, 280 episodes done, I think. That's insane. Yeah, we're just locked in. Yeah, that's really where it is. And we're going to start recording again September, the, like the first week of September. So we're starting the season two of Syntax. <laughs> 280 <laughs> episodes later or whatever. Man, I for me personally, like it's maybe a little bit of a selfish reason, but I, like instead of paying $200,000 to go to a business school, I was like, why don't mm-hmm. I just do a podcast to learn? So I try to ground myself in not getting obsessed by the vanity metrics. And I'm not going to lie. When I saw your 45,000, you know, Twitter fans, I was like, you know, you start to think like, when am I going to get there? And it is like whole like analysis paralysis. But then I was like, listen, you're doing this just so I can know you like, I mean, yes, I could like hit you up. I just be like, Hey Scott, I had a question about this and maybe reply or you answer. But I feel like podcast gives me a way to learn from you. And other thing is I like to build relationships. So everybody that comes on the show I try to like form a relationship and figure out how I can help them in some capacity or introduce them mm-hmm. to someone that I know from before. So it's for me, it's uh, less about monetization. I mean, if it happens, good. But if it not, who cares? For me, it's always about being about the relationships and the learning. you got to put in those reps with anything too. Like I said, like you stated so eloquently that that breaking was, you know, taught me how to do the long game, right? But yeah. I, I created 2,000 video tutorials before I turned it into a business and before I tried to do anything with it other than make YouTube ads. But even then, it was like never, the goal was never for it to become my main source of income. It was just like, let me get better at this thing. And so like 2,000 later, you know, you, you get pretty darn comfortable with it. And what I've noticed more than anything is that people who have the ability or the talent or whatever, it really, it always definitely shines through. As long as you're grinding hard and you're working at it, it will pay off. Like my wife used to get very upset because I would work really, really hard on stuff, like specifically that startup and there'd be no payoff Mm -hmm. for it. She'd be like, I just want like the people who, you know, could consume this stuff to just know how hard you work on it all the time. And I'm just like, well, you just got to give it time. Maybe, (laughs) you know, we'll just see if (laughs) I firmly believe you just keep going for it. But you know, that was always just something that was in the, the back of my head was just get the reps in, get the time, get the ability to like, gain an audience in those sort of ways. And the funny thing about Twitter for me is like, I would imagine that many of my Twitter followers are like almost like found out about me from Syntax. Because when we started Syntax, I probably probably had like 6,000 Twitter followers. Twitter was never my platform. When I started Twitter, I started way late. I didn't really know too much about it. And for a long time, I didn't really necessarily understand providing value on Twitter. It was just there as like a social thing. Now I was like, Wes is good at Twitter. He provides like value with his tweets. For me, that's like something that I'm getting better at. That was always something I was good at doing on YouTube. But like that, look, that was one of the reasons why our thing worked so well is because, you know, I had a YouTube audience and he had a Twitter audience and we could combine them in different ways. And yeah. Damn. And then 
just thinking about it, it makes me understand like the scale is so hard to get. Like if I am correct, you said even with 300,000 plus subscribers at, mm-hmm. at max, you were making $2,000 a month. So when people think about, oh, I make hundred grand a, a year in YouTube, I'm just kind of imagining how many subs you got to have. It's all about watch time. And even after the transition from, you know, you have to have this long of videos to make more money, even after that transition, I didn't necessarily change my format because uh, my format was my format. And again, it yeah. was just all sort of like fun money to me while I was working at another business. So like I never focused on the monetization aspect of it and I never changed my content to fit it. And nowadays I don't even turn monetization on on any of my new videos because the idea is for them to be driven to leveluptutorials.com, not to be like driven away from my content because I'm shoving ads in their face, you know? So yeah, there's a lot of lessons around there about like, the watch pot never boils or something. Is that a, a saying? I don't know if that's like an actual thing, but if, if you're really going for that aspect of it, it might not happen for you in those sort of ways. But if you're going it from it from like, you know, pure intentions of just trying to help and provide good content, it like it will work itself out, hopefully at least. No, I absolutely agree to that. And now you've got your own business set up as Level Up Tuss where you're providing not only just ad-free video, but you have a lot more add-ons now since the first time you started. So I saw mm-hmm. that, like, you know, you're providing the community and a lot of added values. What are the ad- added values you have planned for the roadmap? When I started Syntax, I swear it was like the same day. I don't have a confirmation of this, but I, in my mind, it was the same day. I like had all these declarations, like we're going to do the podcast. I'm going to revamp level up tutorials because I was good at recording content at that point. I was like, well, we're going to do a new tutorial series every single month, obviously, even though that's a crazy amount of work. And you know, I don't think most people could pull that off. But like, I was so good at releasing content, I was very confident in myself to be able to record a new 24 video long series every month or so. And um, I just stated it on the page. This is what you get, you get wow. a 20, 24 video series every month, like a magazine. And here we are, you know, however many years, three years later or whatever, I haven't missed a single deadline. Every single one of my courses has been out before the last day of each month. And I've been doing I don't even know how many courses now. I just released my 50th pro course, which is like ones that are behind the paywall. So I just released my 50th paid course. And that was the whole thing was not to stop doing free content because I still do free content all the time on YouTube. But the free content became my extra time. That became my fun time. And the paid content became this is the value. So, you know, I think it works out best that way because the content being behind the paywall means the content can be better. I can focus so much more effort into it because the video has the potential to, you know, you know, take care of all of our expenses for the month rather than, you know, just hoping that a single video makes me a couple hundred bucks here or there, you know. So for me, the big epiphany was to get off of YouTube and to own the content a little bit better. And the past two series are actually the first two series that we've released with our own video player. Now we're off of YouTube for those entirely before I was using YouTube's video player and we've moved to Mux, M-U-X. Uh, uh-huh. Mux is, is a fantastic host for like a developer, like API centric first. I wrote all the code just about on leveluptutorials.com, at least for the first long time. I built the site from an e-commerce solution with subscriptions and a store and all this stuff. I built it all myself from scratch. And then wow. now I have a couple people helping me on it. So I just declared I was going to do all these things and I just grinded it out. And uh, the nights and weekends that I was putting in and the extra time went to building my own thing rather than building somebody else's thing that was never going to work. So it felt really good about it. And, you know, the the whole what if for me is like, what if I would have never taken that job as a startup and I would have like started this endeavor, you know, a whole yeah. year earlier, like where could I be with it? But, you know, you can't play those games. And I think the startup stuff really taught me a lot about how to run and structure a code base of this size and magnitude myself. So. Man, that is so deep, trying to like own your own content. <laughs> and this is just hypothetical. I'm just imagining, so I could be wrong with the numbers. But if somebody were to work at GitHub as a software programmer and they assume they make 150, then you've got your own business where you've got a paid wall. Now, I've not done a paid wall like that. So would it be fair to say that in the long run, it's easier to make more money than that? It's definitely easier to make more money. Well, okay, it's possible to make more money. I wouldn't say it's easier because without syntax being uh, the hit that it, it is yeah. in the sense that like we get probably like 35 on the low end to 80,000 downloads of most episodes of syntax. 80,000. Yeah, I think 80,000 is wow. the upper ceiling, but the average is probably somewhere around 45,000. Without that amount of people listening to me talk twice a week, 
I don't think level up tutorials would be able to support my family or additional developers working on it. I just don't think it would. Maybe I would have figured out a different way. I think I got lucky in a lot of different respects. And, and luck does not just happen out of nowhere. You put in the time, you put in the time, and then an opportunity comes about and, and it's getting lucky with this opportunity, but you've been laying the groundwork to be able to accept the things that have come from getting lucky on something like that. So like I said, I, I did all the groundwork. I did the hard work and you know, the podcast being a hit, I think was because of the work that we had put in beforehand. But again, I couldn't have predicted that it would have been as large as it was. I don't think either of us did. So very happy that it was obviously because it allowed me to uh, keep doing what I'm doing. So yeah. Dude, I'm just talking with you. So mine is blown away. Like the, the ruthless execution that you have in place in terms of going out and continuing to execute. A lot of it has been me failing into success. People do talk about that a lot, but me specifically, I failed at just about every single attempt to make level up tutorials into a business oh, really? until this one. So, I mean, I even tried the West Boss model at one point of releasing a course for like, you know, big course, like an 80 video course for a yeah. bunch of money. I tried that and it, I didn't get a sale for two weeks. I didn't get a single sale for no two way. weeks. I was just in tears, just like that was actually probably the catalyst that led me into having to take that job because I was just so beaten down by it, just trying so many different things. And I've never been a good salesman or any of that marketer stuff. And, and now I'm getting better at it. But like, it's a skill you got to practice. And I never practiced it. So it was all about providing value. And I wasn't providing any value. <laughs> That's really the end result. I also picked a bad topic to make an ADO video course on, which was React Native, which at the time was just constantly changing. So it was like, you mm -hmm. know, couple months later that whole course is invalidated oh yeah <laughs> like, oh my god like, good idea yeah <laughs> so how big is the current level up Tuts team like is it you wes and then you guys have other freelancers that work with you that hop in the production side of things oh yeah wes is not involved actually at all wes has got his own stuff man he's rocking with his stuff and it lets him you know mm -hmm. uh, spend more time with his family so wes has been doing his own thing consistently and so level up tutorials is just me well, I'm the only the only full-time employee yeah. of Level Up Tutorials. One of the guys in my breaking crew decided he wanted to learn web dev a few years ago, watched a bunch of my videos, took a bunch of courses, and now he is like one of our main UI devs, Eric Sartorius. So one of the guys mm -hmm. is my breaking crew. And next thing you know, he's he's working with us. So he works maybe like occasionally anywhere from like 10 to 20 hours a week. We have somebody in Ohio, Sydney, who's doing a lot of our, she just started doing our newsletter, yeah. email newsletter stuff and our Instagram stuff, which she just started a few months ago. We just hired a contractor to do like 40 hours a week server side code for us. I got a couple of people here and there that are in our Discord channel that are going to be doing one-off projects or here and there sort of stuff. So at the end of the day, any given day, it's pretty much just me, but we have a cast of really talented people that I've found throughout my programming life who can help out at any given point. Wow. And I have had also enlisted a couple of my uh, friends in the video tutorial community, like Travis Nielsen of Dev Tips on YouTube. He did the very first guest course we ever had, he did is a good friend of mine. And then uh, Spencer Carley and then James Quick, they all did courses for Level Up Tutorials. They're the only three people who have ever done a Level Up Tutorials course other than me. And then in the past, Ben, who left pretty early on, he has a, a large family. He's got a full-time job and it's just like not going to happen with him. You know, <laughs> it was just not yeah. enough time in his day to be able to produce video tutorials or even get any quiet to do so. So, you know. And then what are your thoughts on scaling the business? Do you want to keep it like small on purpose? Do you want to like outsource all the aspects so you can relax or do you still want to be involved this hands-on as you are right now? It's a good point. I'm starting to get more comfortable giving up parts of it. I'm the type of person like it's my code and I, yeah. you know, it's like really hard for me to give people things to do. But with Eric, I've known him for so long and, uh, He's done such good work and, you know, he programs a lot like I do. So it was like a nice little training for me to like toss him stuff. And it was like, once I figured out I could just make a GitHub issue and tag his name in it and then it would get done in like a day, I would be like, whoa, this is pretty wow. cool. <laughs> I don't have to type the code. <laughs> so it's been a big learning experience for me. But I, I am realizing now that like the thing that I'm best at is making the content. And sure enough, the site's good. You know, I did the design. I designed it. I built it. I coded it, whatever. Yes, I can do all of that stuff. But like, ultimately, my efforts are best utilized if I can get in there and just record the content. And so uh, that's sort of where I'm learning right now is that I need to rely on other people more and be comfortable with that. So we're going to see with this new dev we have coming on. He's very talented. 
he's probably a better developer than I am, which is going to be fun for me. It's going to be fun to be able to like lean on somebody who's very talented uh, and say like, all right, what do you think we should do here rather than me having to make all the choices? Because that is really at the end of the day, I'm making all the choices, producing all the content. I'm managing the business. I'm answering every customer support email. I still am right now. I mean, the business is me. It's so funny when people respond and like they're expecting it to be some sort of a big corporation. Yeah, I would expect to. I'm just putting in the work. It's like, that's really just it, you know, so. It's your baby. It's my baby. Yeah. Oh yeah. And And always, uh, it's been for a long time and uh, I wouldn't have expected my career to have gone direction it did and I'm happy that it has, you know. It's been very cool for me to have my my trajectory evolve the way it has. Now, because of your brand and popularity, I'm assuming you get a lot of freelance projects. So how do you deal with them? Do you still take them on? You're just like, I don't have bandwidth. I'm going to refer you to somebody else. I started, I think my last freelance project was about a year ago and I had only done it because it was a a former coworker of mine at that first agency. And it was like a quick Gatsby said, I could just knock it out. And then of course, like every freelance project, you end up waiting for the client for assets. You wait for this, you wait for that. And like eight months later, the project's finally done. And I think I was just like, you know what? Fine, went fine, I got paid, but it was not worth the amount of time that I spent thinking about it. So I just, I've I've really stopped all the freelance stuff because specifically Uh it gets in the way of what I'm doing and like the amount of value I can provide. Like we're working on so many neat features for level up tutorials right now, just to make it a better experience or to offer more stuff. And like, we're working on so much more of that stuff. And like my time would have been so much better spent, even though I wouldn't have gotten paid for my freelance rate or whatever to do that project, I could have put that time into the site, which I really enjoy working on the site. I don't want to diminish that. I really enjoy working on my site. And I still call it my site, even though it's, you know, business is set at this point, but like, I've like really crafted this thing to be what I want it to be. And, and I'm very proud of a lot of aspects of it. So when I can get in there and do something fun or cool with it, I'm like always very, very happy to do that. And I'm assuming that now that, so many people in different companies like Facebook, GitHub, you know, like they're just watching your videos. Uh, you could easily get a job there, but you wouldn't want to go and work full time at a company now, would you? No. Well, I, I don't think I would. No, I don't think I would. Although I did actually get turned down from Google. No they way. Came, they came to me. They're like, this is before syntax. They came to me and they were like, we want you to work on this specific project. It wasn't even like, here, let's interview whatever. It's like, no, we have a project in mind. This is uh-huh. what you're going to do for the project. All you got to do is get past the interviews. I did the first interview. Okay, it was easy. I did the second interview. It was like a technical whatever. I did a third part of the interview, which is like building this app. I built the app. The app was perfect. And then the fourth part of the interview, I flew out there and I had to be in Google's offices for eight hours. I had to give a presentation to a room full of people. I had to do all these stupid brainstorming things and coding (laughs) on the whiteboard. And at the end of it, two weeks later, I get an email that just said, we have decided to turn you down for the job or whatever. That's it. It was one sentence saying you didn't get the job. It's like, I was about to rage because I wasn't really exactly excited about moving to San Francisco. But like at that point, they were already like the person who had scoped me out for the project was already like, this is what you should expect for an offer. Like, this is the amount of money you should prepare for or whatever. Yeah. Like in case you want to start looking for places. And then I got the email. It was just like, oh, you didn't get it. Oh, my God. <laughs> All the hopes were high. Kidding. That's when I made the decision to move from Michigan to uh, Colorado. So I moved to Colorado instead. That was great. Beautiful, man. Colorado, so I'm a big fan. Yeah, I've been to Vail. Oh, my God. I haven't oh, seen yeah. a place that beautiful. So Love beautiful. Vail. I know. My wife has a conference that she gets to gets to go to uh, every couple of years that's in Vail. And I'm always just like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll watch the kids or whatever while you go to your <laughs> conference just because I want to go hang out in Vail. <laughs> wow. So walk me through your structure to making the videos because – like, I mean, if you're going to show like how to program in something, I'm assuming that before you go live and record the video, you're going to make sure the code is working or let's say in between something breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, are you okay with this? How do you prep for all that? Uh, sometimes I know the content really well enough that I don't even write test code to make sure that it works. Like it's like stuff that I've, my test code is parts of the level up tutorials code base. So I'll just have a little code base right up there. And then I'll, I'll sort of go around the topic and I, I kind of get the like smaller aspects of it that I don't know, people might get hung up on. And sometimes those little bugs that you hit when you think you know how to do something and it doesn't work, those bugs are really, really great. Happy accidents yeah. that like really lead to you having a better understanding of issues. And other times they make you go crazy and you say, why isn't this working? And and I get very upset and uh, and I just got to like pause the video, chill out, fix the bug, read the code, figure it out, figure out what I'm doing wrong and get going again. And uh I have had too many of those situations now 
in, you know, the past few years where I don't do that anymore. And now I like, I meticulously code out just about every single episode ahead of times now. And granted, I still make mistakes, like forgetting to import something or doing a weird import here or there, missing a misspelling something, dyslexia. So I, I misspell a lot of things oftentimes in my brain. And so like those kind of aspects of it are difficult for me, but like hey, if I got the code sitting right here, I know it's going to work, whatever, I just go through it. So I do, I, I prepare. Actually, it was funny. I, a couple of days ago, I did my first Twitch stream just for fun, just to try it out. Yeah, and what I, I did was the process of me writing the code for what will be one of the videos that's coming out August 31st. So that was like the preparation for the recording of that that video that I had done in that. And sure enough, I, I, I tweaked the code that we did in the tutorial based on what I did on Twitch. But I tweaked it and the code that we end up doing in the tutorial is way more elegant. But the fact that I was able to just get it all on the code base, whatever, get it ready, prepared, allowed me to see what maybe the potential pitfalls might be. Wow. So you kind of just like keep it straight to the point. Because like one thing I'm thinking about as I am listening to your editing process, you mentioned listening to your videos at 2x the speed. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. for syntax, do you also like listen to the audio at 2x the speed and then edit out like the arms and... Oh. Well, the filler words, so you just keep as it is. What is your take? For syntax, on it? we have a video editor or an audio editor. Adam, he has a, com- a company. Let me shout out Adam real quick. Let me cast yeah. Royal. In fact, uh, Adam is essentially like the um, the third member of syntax because we we talk to him all the time, and, you, and nobody ever hears us talk to him because we're always like, Adam, that's bad. Cut that out, Adam. This is we don't want to do this. Let's do this. Because like one of the things I struggle with, maybe I've been told multiple times you need to get a podcast editor. So I use Descript, which basically mm. converts like the audio into a transcript. So I just edit the text file and then listen to it and I manually edit it myself. It's all me. And I don't know. It was just like one of those things where, I mean, like there's this guy in Philippines that I was got put in touch with that can do it for, I don't know, anywhere like eight bucks an hour or something. Mm-hmm. So it's not about the money, but it's like, am I at that level where I need to start outsourcing to somebody else and I felt that maybe for the first 50 episodes, I should do it myself so that I learn where I am, you know, like messing up. Like if I'm talking mm-hmm. over you, I'm only going to know if I edited myself. Yeah. And I edited personally, I edited quite a bit of the, maybe the first like 30, 40 episodes of Syntax. I did it and I did the audio and everything like that. But to be honest, the audio got a lot better when we moved it to Adam because I just didn't have the patience to cut out all those ums and stuff. I just didn't oh, wow. have the patience for it. So his company is Podcast Royale podcastroyale.net and they have been absolutely fantastic. Hey, there's a quote from Wes on here. Simply put, Podcast Royale is good at what they do. <laughs> we get a killer sounding audio, more concise. Yeah. So, uh, oh, I have a quote from here too. Okay, cool. They put a quote from me. They've just such good and we just drop it in a folder and then they publish it. They do a poll request on GitHub and we accept it and it goes live. Like that's it. And that's been a huge help for us as we've grown because I don't have the time to edit this. I just really don't. And at but the they time don't know when the, I, I didn't have a job, I, I had lots of yeah. time to edit this. <laughs> but they don't know the context matter. Like, I mean, if you're saying something about HTML, CSS, maybe Adam doesn't know. So how do you like mm. correct that part if something's incorrect or maybe that's one of one-off things? We often don't mess up in that sort of way. If we mess up, it's because we said something stupid or there was like a, a big, like a big gap or something like that or dogs barking. But for the most part, like it's as simple as just saying, Adam, that was bad. Cut that out. Or Adam, cut back to this point. But like for the most part, I think Wes and I are so like just prepared for what we do at this point that like if we're messing up, we almost know immediately that we're messing up. We stop, we tell Adam to cut it out, and then we just start the sentence again. Like there's rarely, rarely more times that we have to do more than one take of something or I mean more than two takes of something. And even then it's like 90% of the podcast is as it is, you know, recorded as it is. We don't mess up a whole ton, I think at least at this point. And then you listen to every, ed- I mean, after Adam's done editing, do you listen to the whole syntax episode before releasing it and sending it back to him? Like, hey, this is something you missed or? No, oh, no wow. I just listen to it. I listen to it live when everybody else does. It pops up in my my player as like, oh, that new episode's released. And at this point, since we're like so many episodes ahead, I've like forgotten which ones are coming out. So it's like really great to get a little episode pop up. And I'm like, I don't even remember when we recorded this. It would have been like a month ago or two months ago at this point. <laughs> so like right now that we're so ahead of, the recording schedule, it's been, it's been a blast to listen to all these episodes. But now I listen to every single episode. You know, I've never, ever been like, Adam, you need to do this or that or whatever. And, and I think he like never, I don't know if it's him doing the editing or someone on his team, but like no one's ever, there's never been a situation where we've been like, this was a really bad edit. And it's like just never, wow. that never happened. It's been very easy for us. Then 
why don't you also outsource the video editing aspect of your videos as well? I'm curious because you already do that for syntax. It's harder when because the tutorial content is a little bit more prone to making mistakes, right? You're teaching something; it's a little bit more prone to having to go back and whatever. It's also a little bit more prone to the editor needing more context to yes. what was correct and what was not correct. The podcast yeah. is way less so, or at least like if I'm saying something that's wrong, Wes is going to be like, "That's not right," <laughs> or, or like yeah. you know, and then we'll we'll work it out. But like when I'm doing the things, a lot of the times, like the editing is just not easy to do that way. I had an editor, Tim Smith, who did maybe like half of the series last year and uh, he was awesome. He did such a good job and I was really, really excited to be working with Tim and then he got like a, a really nice full-time gig and was like, hey, I don't have time for this anymore. So I had to drop him and I just haven't found a good video editor since. It's like I've auditioned a bunch of video editors and I'll, I'll give them like a, here's a tutorial to cut or whatever and like I don't know if I found anybody who's been like, like if there's the right person who had a bit of web development knowledge who could do it knock it out that was the whole thing about tim is that he like coded in react he knew the stuff so he can like really easily tell where i had made mistakes or whatever he knew it's the just really not easy to find that person you know wow i guess i mean i guess i'm just learning from you that there's no right or wrong way you can have somebody do your own edit you can have somebody not do your edit but either ways i mean as long as you're producing value that's what counts at the end of the day because it sometimes eats me up because you know, to your point, when you see everybody doing the best practices, like everybody's getting a podcast editor, they're churning out content. And then I'm here on this route where I'm trying to build a relationship and craft like mm. a through line, like what am I going to ask you? Like listen to your previous episodes, like stuff about you before just saying that, hey, book a slot on my calendar, just come on. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I'm trying and to go the book route. That's what like makes room for all these different approaches, right? Like I don't want to listen to another podcast who's doing the same thing Wes and I are doing. Like I don't want to listen to that. And I think like ah. even like what like what you're doing with being like a good interviewer, you know, I don't think being a good interview is easy to do. I wouldn't say I'm a good interviewer. When we have guests on syntax, which is like pretty rare, and we've had a, a handful of guests on syntax. When we do, I like find myself talking about myself way too much. And I'll be like, <laughs> I'll like listen to the episode and like, why am I not talking about them or asking them questions or whatever? Or why am I talking about this? You know, I'll be really harsh on myself. I think just doing those kind of things is just a very different skill. It's very difficult in my mind to evolve. And so I think there's room for all sorts of stuff like this and just so many different approaches. When we started doing video tutorials, even then there was like four or five channels and people thought it was like the pool's too crowded. And like uh -huh. now there's like hundreds of hundreds of thousands of web development tutorial channels. And like, I don't know, there's still room for somebody to come in and do it a little bit differently. The biggest thing that I remember is when Travis Nielsen started releasing dev tips, I was getting really jealous because it had taken me so long to get, you know, 100,000 subscribers yeah. and you got like a weekend. And I was just like, really? shoot, like, is he way better at this than I am? And it was just like a totally different approach. And I think it was, he had watched a lot of YouTube in general. So he knew what the YouTubers were doing well. And he, I mean, he's a very charismatic dude. So like, at first I was like really jealous of Travis. And then he had me on his show. I had him on his show. We went to VidCon and hung out together. And it's like, then soon we became like really close friends. But like, it was like, at first I was like, who's this guy coming in here trying to take some of my pond? Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's enough room for anybody doing something different in a positive way or doing it well. But on the corollary, does it worry you that somebody else, the next James or Janet could come in and just rack up this many subscribers that you have built over these years mm -hmm. and be your competitor? Does that worry you? Um, No, I don't think so. Sometimes I'll display slightly jealous tendencies of like, a new podcast coming up or a new something like this or that. And like my wife will be like, what are you talking about? You're the co-host of Syntax. Like, <laughs> why would you be jealous of like them, them growing an audience? I'm like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, she's very wise. She's Dr. T. She is very smart. <laughs> wow, man. I guess what advice would you give to designers, developers who are trying to work for themselves, just like the path that you went on? What advice would you give them? Make sure that you like working for yourself and everything before you just jump in. I wasn't necessarily a good freelancer because like Wes was a very good freelancer because he's very good at managing contracts and managing clients mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I was never good at that stuff. I was good at developing. I would have been much better working for like a small two-person agency where one person handled all, all the biz stuff and somebody else handled everything else. So like just make sure you realize like what exactly it's going to be like day to day, if you can get like period of time where you're maybe working part-time at a company and you have that steady paycheck and you can learn a little bit about those things before 
totally jumping in the pond. I think that's the thing. Because honestly, I've met a ton of developers and while working for myself is absolutely fantastic and I have a hard time imagining in any other way considering I just don't, I work better for myself in many respects, but like not everybody does. And that that's definitely yes. the, the big situation is that like not everybody should be an entrepreneur and not everybody should work for themselves or whatever. And there's like, I don't know, sometimes people try to like shame the people who are just working for one of the, even like a small agency or big company. And to me, that's like crazy wrong because I loved working for my, the agencies that I worked for. I, I loved it. If it wasn't for like some sort of odd turns of events in my life, I'd still be doing that happily. Thank you so much, Scott, for just coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with me, man. I really, really yeah, appreciate of course. it. Yeah, anytime. You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at designmba.show. If you find this episode valuable, share it on social media and please leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.